I was out walking this morning, and before I read the Bible passage that we'll get into in a second, I was out walking this morning, my dog praying, kind of listening for what, what God is going to be saying to, to me, to us, and as I was walking along, um, there was a tree in Orangefield Park that caught my attention. The, the picture's going to go up on the screen, so it is, um, and it's dark and pixely because it was dark and my eyes were pixely at that time in the morning, so it is. But see the, the tall tree, the one that looks like it, it's, it's dead skinny the whole way up, and then it, it's like the tree's on top of the tree. Do you know what I mean? But that, and I, I'm sure there's a, there's a you know, horticultural reason for that. I, I have no idea what that is, but, but as I was walking along praying, this tree caught my attention, or God caught my attention with this picture of the tree. And I stopped, and I just stood there for a minute, and I felt the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, say to me, there are people in church today who are like this tree. They are incomplete. They are, the word was unfinished. The word's unfinished. And I felt like God was saying that he wants to do a work in your life to move you towards completion, that this, the artificial foliage that you're gonna try and bring into your life isn't going to, Cut it isn't going to do it, but God is going to do a work in your life to move you towards completion. The word is unfinished, but that is not where God is leaving you. And that could be really general for everybody here today, but I think that's specific for some people. And be open to what God's going to say to you in the next 30, 35 minutes. Um, but also, if that feels like it's for you, come and let us pray with you at the end, uh, up here in the corner, or grab someone to pray with you. Um, somewhere in the mix, because you, yes, you are unfinished, but God is moving you towards completion. Let me pray, and then we're going to read our passage for today. Jesus, we fix our eyes on you, because you're in the business of speaking to us, and you're in the business of changing our lives and forgiving our sins, and moving us from a place of death to a place of life. You're in the business of restoring our humanity and moving us towards completion. So come, Holy Spirit, and do that work in us today. Move us towards completion as you speak to us, as you minister to us, as you do within us what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are a Bible follower, it'll be on the screen, or you can grab a hard copy somewhere around you, or you can look at it on your device. But we are in Acts chapter 17 this morning. And we're going to read the first verse. And then we're going to jump down to verse 16. So the first verse, Paul is in Thessalonica. Listen now for the word of God. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they went to Thessalonica. And there was a Jewish synagogue there. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And the next few verses explain his ministry and the response to it in Thessalonica. But I want you to jump down with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. 
Paul has now traveled to Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epurian and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the uh, Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And of course, he's speaking about Jesus Christ there. We stop at that verse and we thank God for his word to us today. One of my favorite stories is the one about the, the, the lions that they have a wee baby uh, and the lions bring him up onto Pride Rock and, and the, the wee monkey holds him up and Elton John with the big glasses you know, sings Circling Life. You know the story I'm talking about? Yeah, you with me? Um, but then the story takes a turn for the worst and um, the the wee lion's dad gets, gets killed, gets murdered by the enemy, and the wee lion runs away. But then the story takes another twist, and when the empire strikes back, the wee lion comes back to face the enemy, and they do battle with lightsabers. 
And in the course of the battle, the, the enemy cuts off the wee guy's hand. And then, in the course of the battle, he finds out that the one who died wasn't actually his dad, but the, the guy he's fighting the enemy actually is his dad, and his head, Do you know the story I'm talking about? Come on, who's with me? I've told the wrong story, haven't I? Or maybe I've told the right story, but the wrong part of it in the wrong place. I want you to hold on to that concept of telling the right story, but the wrong part of it in the wrong place. Because that's going to be key to understanding what's going on in this text today. Because we all know the right story, but sometimes because we're so culturally conditioned to the way the church has always been, we find ourselves trying to tell the right story at the wrong time in the wrong place, and it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. And I think our text today is going to show us something really helpful. You see, our text today starts in Thessalonica, which was the capital city of Macedonia at the time. It was a port city. It was a really important city. And as we look at this bit, I want to entitle this the evangelism that we expect, the evangelism that we've come to expect. See, Paul arrives in the city. He's a missionary. He's a church planter. We all know Paul. If you've been around church for more than a few weeks, you'll have heard of Paul. And Paul arrives in the city 2,000 years ago. And he goes to the synagogue, we're told, the place where the Jews and the place where the God-fearing Greeks are present. And he goes on the Sabbath. He goes for three consecutive Sabbaths. And when he's there, he, he preaches to them and tells them about Jesus. And here's the thing to grasp. Paul goes to the synagogue to where the Jewish people are in that city, to where the God-fearing Greeks are in that city, and he is speaking to an audience who are monotheistic. These men and women wake up every morning, they pray the ancient Jewish prayer of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you will worship the Lord your God with all your, and it goes on and on and on. But he's talking to a group of people who have a belief that God is real and God is one. First thing, he's talking to, can we go to the next slide? Oh, it's okay. He's talking to a group of people who, who know from, from their history and from their stories and from the fact that God is real and God is one, that they are separated from God. They are not at one with God, but there is a sin that separates them from God. And they are in the synagogue and they live their lives around religious festivals and practices and journeys to the temple so they can offer sacrifices, korban, different sacrifices, atonement sacrifices, animal sacrifices, drink sacrifices, grain sacrifices to atone for their sin, the stuff that's separating them from God in the hope that if they offer the right sacrifices at the right time, they will do the right works and close that gap that you can see on the screen between them and God. And they know they have to do this because they have a belief in a sacred text, the Tanakh, the Tanakh which is the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and the poetry, and the history, and the prophetic writings, what we call the Old Testaments. 
So they have a sacred book that tells them there is a God. They are separated from God by sin. And there's a series of things that they have to do to close that gap between them and God. This is the audience that Paul is talking to in Thessalonica. And it's into that context he says, yes, but within your sacred book, you see the promise of a Messiah who will come. And that Messiah has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. There might be another slide there. Here we go. Who, because we can never offer enough sacrifices, Paul says to them to close the gap between us and God, Jesus comes and becomes the sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time between us and God. And it is only by putting your faith and trust in Jesus that the the separation between you and God can be bridged both now and for eternity. I'm paraphrasing a bit, I'm riffing a bit, but this is essentially Paul's sermon to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in Thessalonica. Are you with me? Yes. Yeah. Be enthusiastic. Okay, good, good, good. You are with me. Excellent. And this should feel familiar to you because for the last hundred years in evangelicalism, this is the model of evangelism we have intentionally and subtly been taught works when you meet somebody who's not a Christian. You've got to tell them, well, there is a God and you're separated from God by sin And there's nothing you can do, no amount of good works can close the gap and get you to God. But the good news is Jesus has come and has become the, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the bridge, if you like, between you and God. You with me? You've been taught to do evangelism this way. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. We live in a post Christian world, we live in a world where When you walk out these doors, quite a few of the population don't believe in God. Or if they do, they have all kinds of different ideas about who or what God might be. We live in a world where the idea of saying that somebody is sinful and and broken is offensive and actually gets you in trouble. How dare you suggest there's something separating me? I am the fullest version of who I am. I can, salvation is within me. Just do it. Just become the best version of yourself. And the idea of going to your colleagues or the people you play rugby with or sport with or watch football with or play music with and saying, well, well, that's all very good, but the Bible says, what are they? they laugh at you. They have no concept of the Bible. They have no belief in the Bible. They certainly don't believe this 2,000, 3,000-year-old book should have any authority over their lives. And so the idea of an evangelism that is about you inviting your person to come to hear a preacher on the stage, an average preacher like myself, or in history, a phenomenal preacher like Billy Graham, the idea of throwing a tent up in a field or running a mission somewhere, even, and this is probably going to annoy some of you, even the concept of a a schism, a beach Bible camp is working off the assumption that the people coming have a framework of Christian belief and you're trying to join the dots for them within that. But if they don't believe in God, they don't believe in sin, they believe completion, salvation is to be found in themselves becoming the best version of themselves. They don't see the need for Jesus and they don't believe in the Bible. We have to recognize we're in a different starting place. 
we have to recognize we're in a different starting place. You listening now? Some of you are terribly offended, but track with me. See if we can get to a healthy place. There's lots of cool stuff happens in Thessalonica. There's some really difficult stuff happens in Thessalonica. Paul has to leave there. He goes to Berea, and then he goes to Athens, and it's in Athens I want you to pay attention this morning. It's in Athens that I want to bring you this morning. Paul's in Athens. I had the privilege back in 2019, I think it was, of visiting Athens um, with some friends. I've got another photograph there. There we go. Um, they let me go even though I have hair. So they had... Uh, <laughs> that's not fair. Sorry, Gary. Peter's not here this morning. But I, I got to go to Athens with two guys from church, Peter and Gary, who in the course of that trip, became really, really dear friends of mine. We, we went out there to visit um, a missionary family, Noah and Susie Bartlett, who are out there serving God amongst refugees who are coming into the city. Um, one of the nights, we got to have dinner in a restaurant that overlooks or looks across the city at Mars Hill. If you go to the, there we go. You can see it up on the hill, uh, which was phenomenal experience. But the highlight for me was actually getting to preach on Mars Hill, which is the place where Paul preaches, where the sermon happens. And I got to record a sermon, and I don't know if you were about here in 2019, you remember, you remember the link up for the sermon coming from Mars Hill to you guys in Orangefield on that Sunday. It was kind of a cool experience for me to get to step into the footprints of what the Apostle Paul did. Mars Hill, uh, Mars being the name of the Roman god for war, Mars Hill gives you a clue of what that place was like. But 2,000 years ago, Paul the Apostle went to Athens to the same place where I had put my feet and walked. He obviously preached a much better sermon than I preached, but he was there. He started off in the synagogue. That was his thing to do. He started off in the synagogue talking to Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But he quickly realized that this was a very different kind of city. He quickly realized the cultural diversity of this place. He quickly realized that there were idols and statues and temples to false gods, to Greek gods, to Roman gods everywhere. Athena and Zeus and Apollo and Ares and Hermes and loads of others, Greek gods, and Mars and Jupiter and all of the Roman gods. And he realized this was a very different kind of city. And he realized that the people in this city were not starting in the same place as he had been used to. And so if he was going to minister and to reach the city, he had to present the gospel in a different way, evangelism in a new way. Because the people in that city, can you go to the, is there another slide one? Go forward a bit there for me. Yeah, the people in that city did not have a, a monotheistic belief in a single God. They did not have a clear sense of sin and separation. They did not see their need for a savior in Jesus. And they certainly did not have any concept of a sacred text in the Hebrew scriptures that pointed to their need for a Messiah. Paul recognized that in Athens, he needed to present the gospel differently. So how do you share the gospel with people who aren't starting with the framework of Christian belief? This feels like it's really important for us, 
post-COVID and 21st century Belfast? How do you share the gospel with people who don't have this framework that you see in your screens of Christian belief that we've become accustomed to holding the story of Jesus within? I want to say this is important, this is key, but there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger going on. Let me pull out for you what I see Paul doing that I think has significant relevance for us as well. The first thing is Paul looks for a communal place. Most people in the city are not monotheistic Jews and God-fearing Greeks, so they're not coming to the synagogue. So Paul decides it's not about going there, it's about going to the place the people are. So he goes to uh, the Roman Agora, the Greek Agora, the marketplaces where the people are. He goes to the communal place. They're not going to come to where he wants to preach, so he has to go and be incarnational in the places where they are. Fast forward 2,000 years, where are the places that people are? Are the people you work with and play sport with and drink coffee with who aren't Christians, are they coming to church on a Sunday? No. So we have a responsibility to go to where they are. The problem is, if your diary is so full of church activity, if your commitment at the weekend is to only to the friends that you have around church, where do you have capacity to go to the places where people are? By becoming so busy and so consumed in church, you are failing to be faithful to the gospel mandate that God has given us. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in Orangefield. I'm just saying this is what's happening in church. Big picture church, not just Orangefield church. Where are the places people are? People are at the school gate. When you pick your kids up, pick your grandkids up. They're standing there right beside you. They're at the queue in Tesco's. They're in the coffee shops. So the people you play rugby with on a Saturday or hockey with or the people you play music with, the people you sing with in the community choir that you're part of. The guy behind the counter in the pet food shop where you buy the food for Fluffy, your dog. That's where people are. And then as you lean into those conversations, hey, how are you? How's the weather? Did you see the Ulster match last night? They won for the first time. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time you see, you build the conversation. Finally, I guess the place here. We've got half an hour before the school pickup. Do you want to get a coffee in Ark around the corner? Do you and your wife want to come for dinner? We can get the kids together for a play date. You move the conversation along. You build the friendship, but you do it by spending time in the places where people are. That's what Paul did. It's a communal place. And then secondly, there's a common cause. Paul, when he goes to the marketplaces, he's approached by the philosophers he starts with where they are. When he's invited to speak to them, he, he, he talks about, I can see a statue to an unknown God. They literally had so many statues in the city, they had a statue with the plaque on it that said, to the unknown God or to an unknown God. They were so religious, they thought, well, there's a possibility we've missed one, so let's put a blank one up, just fill in the blank. Paul says, let me tell you about him. He starts with the conversation they want to have. There's a curiosity of who this God might be. He starts with the conversation they want to have. 
Most people, my experience has been in, like, I'm a minister, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a weird job to have normal conversations with people. You guys are at an advantage than I am. But most people don't actually want to talk about Jesus. When you meet them at the school gate, they're not busting to hear about Jesus. But they are happy to talk about their kids. Or maybe their work. Or maybe the environment. Or maybe when you get to know them a little bit better, they'll share with you about their health or their mental health. They might even moan about the government. It's like a common thread of conversation at the minute, doesn't it? If you go to a communal place, as you start to develop relationships and friendships there, you find there is a common cause, a conversation point you can unite with them around with similar passion. It's the second thing. The third thing, they're looking for a consistent story. They're looking for a consistent story. When Paul was in Thessalonica, the consistent story was monotheistic God, us separated by sin. Holy book tells us the story, expectation of Messiah. By the way, he's come, his name is Jesus. There is a consistent story that he tracked them into. But when he goes to Athens, he does it differently. There's a box I want to throw up on if that's okay. You're never going to see that. If you've got your Bible open, you will see that because it's the breakdown in verses from verse 24. When Paul talks to them about the, the unknown God, the, the, the consistent thing they want to, sorry, the, the common thing they want to talk about, look what he does. He says that God is the one who made the world and everything in it. He is not just the creator, but he's the Lord. He, he rules and he reigns in all of those spaces. He's put breath in every person because he knows you and he loves you. He's, he's not just distant, but he's intimate and up close. There's no way you can make him because he already exists. But he's right here with you now. And in that context, in that flow of conversation, in that consistent thread of conversation, he starts to tell them about Jesus and their need to repent and turn to Jesus. There's a consistent story. There's a consistent story. And what Paul does is, as he meets people in a communal place, as he has that common conversation with them, he helps them to orientate their lives in a bigger picture of the gospel. Not just sin and repentance, but the whole story of the gospel from creation to one day Jesus will return. He starts with where they're at and he helps them orientate their place into that story. I love what Pete Hughes does. Pete Hughes leads a church over in England. He's a Church of England rector, pastor. And, and he, there's different ways you can do this, but I, I love this picture. Just this little diagram of, of the whole story of the gospel where God creates the world and it's perfect. But as we choose sin and selfishness and rebellion, we choose to go away from a perfect God and the opposite of perfection brings you down. Hughes calls it decreation. God starts with a perfect creation and we lead away from that. We decreate until the point where Jesus comes 
and by his death and by his resurrection, he turns the course of human history and begins to renew and restore and redeem the things that were lost, the things that were broken, the things that were decreated. He, he begins to usher in the kingdom of God, his recreation project. He puts the church at the center of that, that we work in partnership with the Holy Spirit, doing the things and pr- that we believe Jesus would do if he was here, praying the prayers that he would pray. And at some point in our future, Jesus will return and bring creation to that completely renewed, redeemed place. The new heavens and new earth are the renewed heavens and renewed earth. The story of the gospel told much bigger than simply this. And when we have an understanding of the bigger story, our job is, as we have those conversations with people about the things they care about in the places where they are, we have the opportunity in trusted friendship and relationship to help orientate them into the bigger story of the gospel, just like the Apostle Paul did. Let me show you what I mean. We're okay. Let me show you what I mean. One of the big conversation topics at the minute is about the environment, yes? Certainly research shows that if you're under 25 years old, the environment is one of the most passionate things you care about. Um, I think it's something actually everybody cares about in some way or another. Um, And the concerns we have about what is happening with rainforests and ozone layers and uh, water pollution and plastic in our oceans and all of those things and what the world is going to look like for us and for our kids and our grandkids unless we change the trajectory of things. People are really concerned about this. And so in my communal place, I have a common conversation about the environment. And someone says to me, what do you think? And and maybe holding the bigger gospel in my mind, I said to them, well, if you you really want to know, let me tell you, I, I, I believe actually that God created the whole world and everything in it. And I believe that he loves every part of the world. And he created people, you and me, and he gave us a unique role to take care of the creation, to make sure it flourished, to make sure it was here, not just for us, but for our kids and for our grandkids and generations to come. But we've done a rubbish job of it because we're, we're, we're selfish. We're broken. We try to grab things for ourselves. We look for the easiest life possible. You know, the Bible calls that sin, but that's essentially what it is. It's a me-first attitude, not worrying about other people and not worrying about future generations, not worrying about uh, the world's global poor, but actually God has done a work in my life to try and deal with my sin and my selfishness. He did it in his son, Jesus Christ, and we can talk about that if you want, but, but he's reorientated my heart so that I'm trying to live not me first, but God first and others first. He's reorientated my heart, so I, I, I care about the creation, and I've got a vision of how to live in a way that takes care of it. And the question might then be, well, who's Jesus and what's he done in your heart? And that's where you come into the, the narrower gospel piece. Does that make sense? You with me? 
Or, or, or maybe, and this one's probably going to offend some people, I apologize for that, but it's, it's a real-life it, real illustration if you... Um, let, let, let me stereotype this one a little bit, and I apologize, because actually it's an issue that affects a lot of people of different ages, male and female, but if you're a teenager or a 20-something-year-old bloke, it is not impossible that somebody in the rugby changing room or in the school classroom or, or when you're out with your mates pulls out their phone and says, here, have you seen this, and shows you a pornographic image on their phone. Maybe it's been shared through WhatsApp or uh, a, a pornographic website, but they show you an image on your phone. How do you respond to that? It's a real life thing that happens really, really often, even in primary schools. How do you respond to that? Well, as, as your mates are laughing and going, oh, what did I say? And you take a step back and you consistently take a step back from looking at that image. Sometimes your friend's going to say to you, your mates are going to say to you, how come you never look at this stuff? How do you answer as a Christian? Because it's sinful. They have no concept of that. How do you answer as a Christian? Well, maybe you say, Actually, research shows that a significant percentage of people, especially women in the pornographic industry, have been trafficked and are being forced to do it. It's, it's a modern-day slavery. Maybe you said to them, actually, there's new medical research that shows that prolonged use of looking at pornographic images does something to the neural pathways within your brain that actually rewires how arousal happens in your body and it, it stops you having a normal relationship with a person of the opposite sex. It stops you having sex even with a person of the opposite sex because you are turned on differently, not the way it's meant to be. And actually, if you really want to push me on it, I believe that sex is something that God has given us, and it's not about me and my fulfillment of my needs, but it's other-focused. Love is other-focused. Sex is other-focused. It's about your partner, your life partner, honoring them and, and pleasing them, not, not using them so you can be fulfilled, but giving yourself to them selflessly, and the reason I, I, I believe that is because the God I believe in, that's what he does. He, he came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and modeled perfect selfless love, even to the point where he died on the cross. And his death on the cross has done a work in my heart that, that has changed the trajectory of it, that I'm not just trying to, to grab things for myself and say me first and my needs first, but actually... I want to be someone that lives like Jesus, and that means loving my sisters well, not seeing them as objects to be used, and loving my wife well. And they might say, tell me more about Jesus. You see that? Tracking the story that people want to talk about into the bigger story of the gospel. We're almost there. To do this in this journey, Paul does it with the people in Athens by talking about the unknown God. Our stories will be different because the people in Northern Ireland and Belfast want to talk about different things. 
There's a communal place, a common cause, a consistent story. There's a clear invitation. The Apostle Paul, as he has this conversation with these philosophers in Athens, at a point in the story, he says to them that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, that people need to repent and turn to him. There has to be a clear invitation. There has to be a clear invitation. You're inviting people to respond to what Jesus has offered them. You're inviting people into the story of God. That's what Cliff and Nikki were talking about. A clear moment of invitation to an alpha course. A clear moment of invitation to know and to respond to the person of Jesus, to repent and turn to him. Here's the thing, though, it doesn't happen in the first conversation. It doesn't necessarily happen in the first conversation. It can be a journey to get there. It can be a journey to get there. I was talking the other week to a granddad in church, I'm not going to say his name, but a granddad in church who for years has been modeling Christianity to his grandkids. He's been praying for them. And after years of consistently doing that, he's invited them to come to an Alpha course with them and he's bringing them to an Alpha course. There's a moment of clear invitation. There's a moment of clear invitation. But that moment of clear invitation happens in the context of a commitment to journey. Number five, a commitment to journey. We're told that only a few people respond to the gospel as Paul invites them to at the end of his sermon. Research today shows that it takes approximately two years for somebody who has never heard of Jesus from their first contact with a Christian to be ready to give their life to Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a commitment to journey. You need to be willing to step into the communal places and build friendships there. You need to be willing to listen to the conversations people want to have. You need to be coming to church and have a clear understanding of what the Bible story is. That's why we do home groups and CBE groups. And in the right moment, not the wrong moment, in the right moment, you have to be brave enough to have a clear invitation in the context of the journey, in the context of the relationship, in the context of the friendship that you have. And here's the final one. I'll be finished with this. The band want to come back up at this point? Here's the final one. You need to have a compassionate conviction. Listen to this. Verse 16 while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. His heart broke for them. He got frustrated. He, he maybe wept. He maybe prayed, but what he saw in the city around him broke his heart. He was greatly distressed because the people were so far from God. 
we have become conditioned to outsourcing evangelism to the professionals. We invite them to come to church in the hope that something Gary or I say will do the magic thing in their lives. I'm being flippant with that. Or we send our kids along to, to this, that, or the other. We, in this new Belfast, and it is a new Belfast, it's a post-Christian city that we now live in. There are ripples of people who still hold a framework of Christian belief, but the increasing number of people, especially in younger generations, do not know this stuff and do not want to know this stuff. And we have a choice as a church of going, that's okay, that's up to them. Or we can allow God to do to our hearts what he did to Paul's heart in Athens and break our hearts for the people, not strangers, but the people we see around us every day, that they don't know Jesus. And weep for them and pray for them and free up space in our diaries so we can go and stand beside them and listen to the things they want to talk about and love them and commit to journeying with them in the trust that God will open up space to talk about him in the conversation and in the right moment to say, here, our church is running an alpha course. Would you come with me? It'll help you think through some of those things we've been talking about. I want to pray as we land this. There's two prayers I want to pray. The first one is that God will break your heart. This idea of loving more, this idea of caring more, this idea of having a broken heart and a burden for the people of Belfast, it doesn't come by trying harder. It's not something you need to feel guilty about if you don't. It comes by by asking God to give you the burden for this city that he has. And so if you want to be able to love more, if you want to be able to pray more, if you want to be able to, to weep more for the people in this city who don't know Jesus, I just invite you where you are to open your hands. There's a physical sign of desire and response. Holy Spirit, come and do in the hearts of the people in this room what you did in Paul's heart as he walked into Athens. And we just give the Spirit a second to do that work in your hearts and minds, in my heart, in my mind. And then secondly, we prayed with the kids 
We got them to touch the palm of their hands like Jesus on the cross. We got them to pray for their friends that their friends would see Jesus. We pray that prayer again as we touch our hands. Who are the people in your life who are ready for an invitation to an Alpha course? Who are ready to see Jesus? Who are ready to have their lives transformed by his grace, by his love, by his mercy? Maybe some of you are in this room today and you've never asked Jesus into your life. He died for you. He wants to do a work in your heart that, that brings you from death to life, that forgives your sins, that, that changes the trajectory of your life from self-centeredness to selfless love. If you want to become a Christian this morning or rededicate your life to Jesus this morning, just touch the palms of your hands. Jesus, come and forgive as people this morning repent and turn to you. Fill them with your spirit and make them your children. Christ, be magnified in every one of us. Be magnified in this church. Be magnified in this city. Take back what seems to be lost and use us. Use us, Lord. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.